Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Namaste, motherfuckers. Welcome to Namaste, motherfuckers, the only podcast where the worlds of work, comedy, and well-being collide. I'm your host, Callie Beaton, and this episode is called "He Left Early," inspired by my guest today's incredible book. You Left Early, a true story of love and alcohol. A third of the alcohol sold in England is drunk by around 4% of the population. And if everyone stuck to the recommended 14 units of alcohol per week, alcohol sales in the UK would decline by nearly 40%. This is a comedy podcast as well, guys. Bear with. Scientists measuring the effects of alcohol on rodents use something called the wobble scale, which goes from no wobble through falls from side to side whenever moving to falls onto side and can't get up. During Prohibition, undercover FBI agents were sent out to see how long it would take to find someone who would sell them booze. In Chicago, it took 21 minutes. In Atlanta, 17 minutes. And in New Orleans, 35 seconds. I'm in my study. Your actual real study where the magic happens. (laughs) That's my guest today, Louisa Young. Sigmund Freud recommended using cocaine as a treatment for alcoholism. He himself used it to help himself with depression and believed it stimulated his capacity to unlock things normally tucked away in the recesses of his brain. He quit using cocaine later in life and got into therapy dogs instead. That's a true story. And if you're interested in therapy dog stories, listen to the Namaste Motherfuckers episode with Anna Webb. Yes, that is a shameless plug. In the 1890s, drinking eau de cologne became a way for fashionable women to drink alcohol without detection. And rather more recently, in 2018, there was a scientific study which proved that alcohol really can make you better at speaking foreign languages. Well, my daughter's just got a first-class degree in linguistics, so that explains a lot. Sorry, I will settle down in a moment. I'm just moving my chair around. Louisa Young is a British novelist, songwriter and journalist. I was completely blown away when I read Louisa's book, He Left Early, a memoir about her lifelong love affair with composer Robert Lockhart, how she ultimately lost him to alcoholism and the grief that followed. It's also a really funny, beautifully written book. Louisa is also the co-author alongside her daughter under the nom de plume Zizou Corder of the Children's Lion Boy book trilogy, Much Beloved by My Son, which was another reason I was really pleased to have her on the podcast. Louisa and I talked about addiction, alcoholism, rehab, love, life, food, books, writing, music, creativity, mothers and daughters. But we started by talking about why Louisa wrote this book. One of the 
reasons I wrote the book was because I never wanted to have to talk about it again. Because when this you could be a really short like podcast, that, then. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's the great irony, isn't it? You know, as a human being, you want to be able to not have to go over something over and over. And as a writer, you go over it over and over in order to make a book out of the pile of absolute human shite that happened. And then as a sort of human being and a writer, you've written a book and you do want to put it out there. And especially when the people who read it say, as you have, that, you know, it did something for them. And I get the most amazing letters about it. Um, you know, messages, messages from, from strangers still. It's been out a couple of years and it, at, the, at the same level of just people who've been through it and have not been able to you know, talk about it or to find a way to be honest about it because, you know, addiction is one of the great difficult, difficult, I mean, it's difficult even if you're fully experienced in it and you've read up about it and you've studied it. This combination of the emotional and the physical and the intellectual and the surely I shouldn't, uh, you know, we ought to be able to get a grip with this and yet over and over again, the whole point about it is you can't. It's still, it's quite, it's definitely the most difficult thing I've ever had anything to do with. Well, you described it really, be, I've also um, had a bit of a propensity for going out with um, addicts and alcoholics over the years, and you just described it so beautifully. And the judgments we make about alcoholism in particular, I think, and, and watching your your relationship with those things shift as your relationship with, and we should say it for anyone who hasn't read it. So, so it's, it's a kind of about your lifelong love affair and it really almost was lifelong right from when you were teenagers with the composer and musician Robert Lockhart Mm. yeah we met when we were kids you know when nobody was an alcoholic we were 17 and you never think about things like that and you um you know you're just friends or you or you fall in love with each other or whatever and I was a bit in love with him for my whole life really and then very much in love with him (laughs) a lot of it as well and it sort of gradually becomes apparent what's happening to this person that you love. And often it's within the family and, you know, children grow up with alcoholic parents and because that's like their whole planet, their whole life is, is controlled by alcoholism. That's one very particular setup. Um, but when you're in love with somebody, you know, technically you should be able to remove yourself from them the way that a parent and child can't really, you know, a child can't remove themselves from an alcoholic parent until they're a lot older, if they can ever. But, you know, when you're alongside each other and we're the same age, one one day apart in age, and you just see this thing sort of happening and you don't recognise it. And it's a boiled frog situation, isn't it? Then you think, oh, my God, it, it is this. But alcoholism feeds off denial. Mm-hmm. It's the number one is denial. And it's a, you say you propensity for going out with alcoholics. It, they're very hard to avoid. I mean, so many of us. <laughs> I, I have an argument, which I'd be willing to go into, which is that we're an alcoholic society, the mm-hmm. UK. What is your what is your feeling about that? Do you mean you mean in you mean in the UK specifically? Well, I, I say the UK because I know more about the UK mm-hmm. and I can't throw comments around about societies that I haven't lived in Mm -hmm. but you know if (laughs) okay if I were to propose a tv series about alcohol being disinvented 
not existing mm -hmm. or being taken away from British society. Well, for a start, it would never get made because it would make everyone feel so uncomfortable. And mm -hmm. like, oh, yeah, we like edgy stuff. We want to be edgy. But, you know, edgy basically means, you know, people getting very drunk and doing stupid things rather than, mm -hmm. no, let's do something really, really controversial and revolutionary here. Let's remove alcohol completely from mm -hmm. the equation. Well, we couldn't because the economy would collapse. Mm -hmm. There would be no hospitality. There would be very little in the way of arts because all arts... Uh, locations basically are funded by the bar mm -hmm. <laughs> and, you know a, a whole other series of thoughts and possibilities about how the arts themselves are fueled by drink I actually don't think it is I, I thought that that recent film um Another Round yeah that was fascinating really interesting yeah. really really interesting grown-up piece of work about about alcohol but mostly we do not have a grown-up attitude to it we have a kind of tee-hee ha-ha I was so naughty I got so drunk last weekend I think it's even that you're a sort of social pariah if you don't I don't drink very much because I'm quite an addictive personality myself mm -hmm. so I gave a good account of myself for many years with alcohol and then decided when I got into stand-up yeah. it was just too risky I'd worked in yeah. the orbit of stand-ups for years well, and you're well. always in a bar or cool. a pub and you Absolutely. can always get a free drink and, you know, there are industries where if you're not drinking, you are putting yourself at a massive, massive disadvantage. Yeah, I think comedy you is... Know, comedy, is, yeah. music, journalism. Yeah. I mean, it's a while since I've worked in the outside world, but certainly as a journalist in the 80s, you know, anytime anybody wanted to, you know, do anything or make any suggestions or offer you a job or... You know, anything at all, you know, interview, blah, 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 blah you know. It's all over a drink. Yeah. I mean, my other theory is, that in fact, there would be no UK without alcohol, because without alcohol, we would never, ever get around to shagging each other. Yeah, there is that. The lack of, I definitely think that some of the, it's like self-medication, isn't it? I think a lot of people, yeah. it's what keeps them at a sort of baseline of being able to function. Yes, and, it's a social lubricant yeah. and it's a, a kind of courage pill and, you know, it serves all sorts of purposes. And the point is of course that it does work it does work if it didn't work it wouldn't be a problem well it, it works, works until it doesn't it works and then yeah. it's not working and then you know it seems like complete fluke how deep in the doo-doo you are don't you think it's like all, a lot of strategies as you go through life, there are strategies that work and they work and they work, whether it's, you know, work up, whether you're a workaholic, an alcoholic, a perfectionist, whatever it is. And those things work for maybe a decade, two decades, three mm. decades, and then they sort of reach their sell by date. And mm. in the case of alcohol, by then, it, it, the, the sell by date is yeah. a pretty risky equation that yeah. you're faced with. And, and that that really that kind of alcoholism creep that you so depicted so well in the book that it was, mm. it, it, was it was amazing to make Robert such a, you really felt sort of that you were on his side, even though the book's written through your eyes and you could mm -hmm. easily have sort of felt that he was demonised. Similarly, it would have been really easy to be reading it and thinking, well, why don't you just fucking leave him? And somehow you managed to make it really clear why that is such a difficult thing to do. And I wondered, I actually listened to the audio book, as I said to you um, probably before the episode will start in terms of what our listeners will hear. But as I was saying to you before we started recording, I actually got into it as an audio book and I ended up during the petrol crisis stuck in the Southwest trying to find petrol in the middle of nowhere, listening to your voice, reading the book. And I did wonder whether I got, it felt particularly poignant hearing you reading it because I, I got such a sense of the bits that touched you and where you were at vis-a-vis mm -hmm. -vis him and the subject matter. And, and how was it for you re reading it? Reading it was really nice, actually, because I know if I'd let anyone else read it, 
I would never have been able to listen to it because, like, ah, you know, no, 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 wrong emphasis, wrong, you know, they're my words and mm -hmm. it's my life. So obviously extremely close to my heart. And, you know, somebody had mispronounced a word. What, what, what's this stranger doing interpreting yeah. their thing? You know, I'm interpreting it by having written it. So it's right and proper that I should read it. And it's I very think, intimate. It's an incredibly intimate yeah. portrait of your of you and your relationship. Yeah, yeah, it, yeah, it really is. I mean, the leaving him thing, it's interesting to go back to that because, in fact, we only got together as a, you know, we are a couple and we are definitely going out together, you know, after a long and picturesque um, period of, you know, being the person that we always have went back to, but we've, oh, no, 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 we're not going out together. Yes, I know we've just been on holiday together. I know that we're, you know, sleeping together four nights a week, but we're not together, you know, no, no, no. But when we actually decided we were going to be together was when he realised that he needed to deal with it, when he said, yes, I, I have got a problem here and I do need help and I'm going to, you know, go and get treatment. And if and when I do that, you know, then, you know, will you be my gal? And that was you know what I've been longing for but, mm -hmm. and in a way at that stage I almost wouldn't have minded if he'd done that to some other girl because I just really wanted him to, to live recover and recover and, and 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 stop sliding down that drain that he was sliding down did you believe that he was going to because I think that's one of the things yeah. with alcoholics yeah, that, you, that because he'd had false starts where he tried to give up said he'd give up lied to you about give, which is the classic yeah. alcoholic no, that, no, that was later that, that was, was later. after he'd he, given he, up yeah, because when he gave up, it, it then when he came and said, I'm going to stop or I'm going to get treatment so that I can stop, I'm going to take everyone's advice because everyone was telling him the same thing. And, in, and he said, I'm going to deal with this. So when he stepped up, we all said, hooray, hooray, yes, we're all right with you. But, you know, it's, it's, it's not either or. It's not, it's not a black and white thing. Mm -hmm. It's a process. Everybody thinks, yes, turn on a dime and sail off into happy land. Mm -hmm. It's not. It's not a three-point turn. It's not a five-point turn. It's an 898-point turn. Mm -hmm. And, you know, if you're serious about something, then you're there for the long haul and you acknowledge that it's going to be a long haul. And then you have to struggle with all the, the you know, the same shit that he's struggling with, which is... I blew it. I really wanted not to blow it and I blew it and now everyone will hate me again and I'm mm -hmm. right back where I started. Mm -hmm. Or it's, I blew it. Okay, that was bad. However, pick yourself up, get back to a meeting, onward and upward, it's a long haul. So once you've sworn that you're in for the long haul, knowing as best you can what that involves, and then of course you don't really because nobody knows what's going to happen. Mm -hmm. and, and it just carried on being unbelievably difficult for another five years. But in the long run, he did. And you had five years. So he went He went to Cloud's house, didn't he, in he Dorset? Did, yeah. Which is really weird because I grew up very, very near there. And I remember we all didn't quite know what Cloud's house was. And there were all sorts of yeah. rumours about what it was. And obviously as an adult, I've since Isn't, known people who've gone there. Yeah. But that again is so much part of it. It's sort of bit mysterious, bit terrible. You know, there are those illnesses which carry a sort of moral legacy with them. And, you know, if you think about lepers, ooh, you know, that's not very good. You don't want to, you know, leprosy, ooh, you know, addiction, ooh, you know, sort of dirty illnesses. 
to be. Mm. Although I think it's, I do think as a society, we also demonize people who have a similar relationship with food. I mean, there are, we, we, we talk yeah. about people just not being educated about food or eating badly, but there are many, many, particularly many women, my brilliant friend, Jess Fosterkew and her hoovering podcast, which is all about women's relationship with food, occasionally mm. men's relationships, but it tends to be women. And I think that's another thing where we demonize people. We sort of think, well, just stop eat, stop having that relationship yes, it's, with it's, food. It's yeah, it's, it's a, you know, pull your socks up. Yeah, just don't and, do it. Don't eat that. Yeah. As well. And the point, I, you know, one of the great things about being alive now is that things are opening up in those areas and it's not enough to say pull your socks up or, you know, you're lazy, you're silly, you're dirty, you shouldn't smoke, you shouldn't do this, you shouldn't do that. And realising that it's not just about morals, it is also about, you know, your genes and your situation. And that is a great improvement but there's still a long way to go on that there's a, a big stigma way. attached to it because I, I you've got that sense really well as well of people sort of changing before your eyes and mm. something that's quirky and eccentric and charismatic and incredibly compelling which often is the case as well with addicts and alcoholics when they're on their game yeah. they're extremely good company and exciting yeah. and, and people are drawn to them and you depicted that mm. so well but then you also watch that same person being somebody who people will sort of start to walk away from in a pub mm. and duck behind mm. a bus stop because they don't want to see them and it was it almost as if sometimes did me seek yeah 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 and, and did you in terms of watching that go, because one of the things that also struck me was that there are books by addicts, there are books by parents of addicts, mm. but there I couldn't really think of another book by a partner of an addict um, in the way that yours is. I found that. Hall. Oh, yes, but that's quite Even a while a ago. Bell Hall. <laughs> that's mere 200 years ago. Yeah. Yeah. It's the last good book that I can think of um, where the issue of being in love with an addict is, is dealt with. And... Of course, there is so much overlap there because being in love is, after all, a sort of weird chemical state based on excitement and desire and the belief you can't live without it and you would never want to live without it. So one of the things which comes up constantly is if you're in love with an addict, does this mean that you're addicted to the addict? And my mm-hmm. would be no more than any other love. I mean, when you're in love mm-hmm. with somebody, whatever, whatever the situation is, whether there's substance abuse involved, you know, it's it's weird. It's a weird human emotional thing and needs to be looked at from all sorts of directions. And what it comes down to is, is it, you know, does it work for you? Mm-hmm. And, and did it work for you? What, being in love with Robert? Mm-hmm. <laughs> yes, in many ways, it absolutely did. In many ways. But, you know, that said, he's probably the worst boyfriend anyone could ever have. But... And at times uh, the best boyfriend, that also came across. the best. The thing is, when, you know, when he was sober, he was my absolute true love. He was a sweetheart. Mm. He was so kind, so funny, clever, generous, honest, on it. You know, he was heaven. And a genius. I think being in the orbit and, of someone who's a genius is quite attractive. Well, was a bit of a genius as well, yeah. and I do like that. You know, it's, it's lovely when a... You know, he gives you a string quartet for your birthday. You know, yeah, you like, that's nice. Things. Yeah, I'm lucky to get, you know, an Amazon yeah. voucher. So I can see that's attractive. Yeah, he'd and- write soundtracks for my books. When I was writing a book, he'd write a soundtrack and then he'd just sort of play it. To get that is enormously romantic. I mean, it doesn't get yeah. more romantic than that. It makes the girl feel quite special, yes. It and you ended up writing music. As it, it, I wondered about the relationship between kind of grief and loss and creativity because having read um, quite a bit of your stuff, there was a whole other quality to it. was a very different type of a book, I think, you left early, but there was something in it that just felt like that book just kind of burst out of you. That's how it felt 
reading it. Oh, I'm glad. I'm glad it felt like that because I tell you, it takes a great deal of work to make something look like it's a first. Yeah, a lot of effort to make things look effortless. I always want to say that's yeah. being on stage, and no, because mean, you very... waded through all of the, you literally had to go through almost literally boxes of memories and metaphorical mm-hmm. boxes of memories. Mm-hmm. And how was that experience doing that? Because I guess you were on your tough. own doing it. it was tough because. You're wondering why you're doing it. I mean, it's literal dirty laundry. So many other people one has to think about and bear in mind and questions all the time of, oh, God, do I, you know, do I really want to? Do I even want to look at it? I, you know, basically you just want to go to bed and cry. But, you know, if shit happens in a writer's vicinity. The writer is going to write about it. That's mm-hmm. that's the rules. There's nothing I can do about that. I couldn't not write that book. Plus, there really was... A vacuum where someone where, where where people who loved alcoholics you know where were our books the, that's the, what i felt the, reading yeah. it. i mean i was not any there so i many felt that reading by it. alcoholics yeah. normally written about step eight probably of the yeah. 12 steps you know whether they're, they're, they're doing all right they've, 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 they've come through it up to a point and they're ready to you know express themselves about this horrible thing that they've been going through but then, you know, the, the, those books only get published if they're by, you know, the famous footballer or the, or the yeah. wonderful book star. And they're always redemptive stories. One of the things I loved about it was the, was the genuine, I mean, there's so much mess attached, you know, the mess you go yeah. through to get as far as step eight, mm-hmm. the mess that is left even once you get to step eight yeah. and everything around it. And, and the, Will Self was, was his sort of AA buddy, right? Is that yeah. right? Was he? Yeah. Mm-hmm. And I, I, I went to, um, Goldsmith University with one of Will's great pals that he met in rehab and she'd gone to Goldsmith's years mm-hmm. later in her 30s you know we were all sort of undergraduates yeah. and so was she um, and I remember getting a real insight into what it was like to be you know she was 15 years older than me and what it was like to genuinely have been you know she she burnt her parents house down lost half her hand sort of the similar sort of physical ravages in the same yeah. way that Robert lost a foot and you literally you've lost parts of your body you've lost parts mm-hmm. of your mind you've lost large mm-hmm. swathes of your life and if you had to sum up, I ended up sort of just going back and back over certain bits of it. Um, if you had to sort of sum up alcoholism for somebody who doesn't, who hasn't lived in the proximity that you have and hasn't understood it as you have, how would you how would you sum sum it up? What it actually is? Well, it's um, it's a condition which affects every part of your life, and it affects everybody around you. It's like a kind of vampire that takes up residence inside you and punishes you anytime you try to control it and punishes everyone around you. Um, people often, you know, you hear people saying, oh, oh I've been alcoholic, you know, I got so drunk, I must be an alcoholic, or I'm drinking such a lot, maybe I'm an alcoholic. It's not that. It's one of the single most useful phrases that, I was ever given about it to try and make sense of it is it's not what you drink and it's not how much you drink it's why you drink and what mm-hmm. it does to you mm-hmm. so it's your relationship with drink not the quantity of drink yeah yeah and that it, was it, that's it, a real it, work it, thing it, worth hearing for drink, people I think you know a pint of beer but if when you drink that pint of beer you crash the car hit your wife lose your job upset your children then that pint of beer is a problem. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And somebody else can be drinking six pints a night, but they're as strong as an ox and they're, all they do is, you know, start singing songs and telling people they love them. 
great. Mm-hmm. That's mm-hmm. not a problem for you. If your liver can handle it and you can physically handle it, then, you know, and you can not do it if you don't feel like doing it, not a problem. Mm-hmm. So it's... um. So it's not about quantity. It's not about going online no. and Googling how many units am I meant to be drinking. It's no. all about what's happening no, no, around no, no. it in your life. The context. I mean, the units are going to be good for you or bad for you. They're going to make you fat. They're going to put pressure on your mm. system. Fuck up your liver. You've got alcohol in your bloodstream. Yeah. You know, it's occupying a space that should be occupied by other things like kind of, you know, oxygen and, mm-hmm. you know, nutrients and things. You know, alcohol is not in general particularly good for the human body. Mm-hmm. But for it to wreck your life, mm-hmm. that takes a particular relationship mm-hmm. between you and it well there are other ways it can wreck your life of course it can I mean it can still give you cancer and make you crash a car even if it's the first time you've ever had a drink you can get too drunk and, and you know go out and fall off a roof for example but alcoholism itself I mean and this is one reason why it is so complicated because mm-hmm. you know, when you talk about alcohol abuse what, what are you talking about the condition of addiction or just doing something stupid while under the influence you know misjudging uh, it, I mean, there are people whose lives are dedicated to analysing all those different ways in which it can affect us. But at the same time, you know, the drugs, when, when the drugs do work, they do work. Namaste, motherfuckers. What's your relationship with drink personally? Because I guess, I like, I so it. you'll have a drink and, and it doesn't, it. and it's never been a problem. You'll just have a few drinks and it's all um, good. I drank too much when I was younger, like most people. I think we all did. I think they drink less now, do you? Does your daughter drink I, less than we all used to drink? Oh, yes. Yeah, my kids are much oh, more yeah. sensible than I was as yeah. well. Yeah, yeah. Well, I think for her as well, you know, living alongside an alcoholic I mean Robert didn't live with us but you know ha- having him around was uh what was that in, but that came across really well kind of clearly as well in the book and the idea I mean as parents we spend our whole time wondering if we damaged our kids and I'm sure the answer is yes we've all damaged our kids unavoidably by being their parents mm-hmm. uh, but ha- how was it for your daughter living through Robert coming and going and whatever her perception and growing perception was of the of the illness he had well again I, I can't really speak for her um but she you know, because Robert was in my life before she was born mm-hmm. and was very much part of everything. And so she was born into a world where Robert existed. He was kind of a father figure on and off to her, even though he wasn't her father. It felt like he sometimes was wanting to call, occupy that. Yeah, I wouldn't call it. I mean, he adored her. He yeah. absolutely adored her and yeah. found, found her intensely amusing and lovely. Um, she, um, he wasn't a father figure because, you know, her own father was very much present and being mm-hmm. her father. But... Um, but it's a sort of thing which comes out over time, doesn't it? You know, what what effect something actually had in the long run. I mean, Robert's been dead nearly 10 years now. And, yeah, it's that thing of, you know, would you have done things differently? Well, no, because if you could have, you would have. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And so it's sort of pointless. But I think as she grows up, as she, I mean, she's now 27, she you know, has a lot more experience and understanding of, um, you know, how, how things can be, how, how humans end up in this sort of situation of everybody is genuinely trying to do the right thing. Yeah, life's messy. I right mean, you do realise that. Really yeah. quite 
hard. <laughs> and I guess hard. losing, so she'd have been 18 when you lost Robert. And I guess suddenly mm-hmm. seeing when you're not at a point when you're in that sort of the absolute throes of grief to, to try and sort of parent a child at that point. And when I thankfully didn't have to go through that when my kids were that age. But mm-hmm. I imagine at that point, it's all hands on, you know, parent becomes child, child becomes parent. Oh, unavoidably. God, I, just, I was like a gas balloon, you know, I was like a gas balloon with her, basically, and various other people just holding on to my string. Mm. And she came out very beautifully in that way in the book, I thought. She was just so good. I mean, she's always, you know, been a wise head on young shoulders. Mm. And she really looked after me. And then went off to Brazil. You know, a few months later, it was her year off and she was meant to be going to South America. Well, she put all that off. And then she said, right, Mum, I'm going now. Will you be all right without me? And I'm like, yeah. You have to say yes at that point, don't oh, you? Whatever you they're me. saying. Fly free, my pretty, you know. <laughs> yeah. They say you give them roots and you give them wings, right? And it's exactly. the only job in the world where the more redundant you are, the better you did the job. It's a bit of a cruel scene. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. yeah. And it's um and, and in terms of life sort of since then, how was it? Because the, the other thing, quite aside from everything you go through and losing somebody in that way, and it, it you left early, you know, he did, he left early and you didn't get your happy ending after it being so hard won. And I just know. when you, you should got have got the happy bit. Like, we had a bit of happy ending and it was happy, you know, the, the, the damaged happy ending where, you know, yes, he was disabled. No, he couldn't walk properly. You but, were going to get married, weren't you? And then oh, that we were going to get married. Yes, we were. That was so nice. When he was a bit better after his cancer, we were going to get married. But he got cancer and he survived the cancer. And when he died, there was no cancer in his body and he was sober. So, you know, <laughs> did the alcoholism kill him? Absolutely. Did the alcoholism give him the cancer? Absolutely. But did he actually kind of survive them both and then die of a freak accident, which mm-hmm. only happened because of all the damage that the previous things have done yeah you know people die of who they are mm-hmm. they really do and he absolutely died of who he was god bless him and you lost your and it was very sudden at the end wasn't it i guess you having been yeah. in the brace position for years knowing he might end up killing himself as an alcoholic i guess finally your guard might well, have been down and thought now he's in the clear all. bit i mean the, the the cancer treatment was you know it, it worked but oh it was hardcore he lost part of his he lost part of his jaw yeah he had half his jawbone removed and lost his tongue and his throat if you smoke cigarettes and drink spirits together so smoking cigarettes are that bad for you drinking spirits that bad for you Mm -hmm. both of them together but the venn diagram isn't good exponential exponential and so he had a um throat cancer and survived this extreme surgery which left him unable to eat or drink or talk properly and he um survived the extreme i mean you know chemotherapy is poison basically Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. and radiotherapy is basically being nuked and the better you start, it starts to do its job, the worse you feel. You yeah. and, and then fill you with poison. You know, it's not going to be great. So he was very diminished in some ways and absolutely himself in others. Um, and there was a weird parallel that he his the jaw procedure he went through, you'd written a character in a historical novel, a war <laughs> hero, who had the same, pretty much the same process of jaw reconstruction. Surgery. Yeah, it was very... And was that just a weird... That was a weird, weird, weird flu. Synergy for no... In My Dear, I Wanted to Tell You, which is a novel that was published um, 
before Robert died. Um, yeah, no, and everybody thought that I'd given my character, Riley Purefoy, this um, war wound from the First World War because I knew about it because of Robert. But no, I'd written it all before Robert was even diagnosed. It was, um, you know, it was it was all in place. There's a bit in the book where you get told in the hospital what the treatment's going to be and, you, you know, you'll get, you get given the word and then you know all about the jaw reconstruction <laughs> surgery. They're yeah, like, what the fuck? Absolutely, absolutely, uh, yeah. So you knew what was ahead of you and you didn't get your... Well, in a way, you know, but you, you you just don't. I mean, even if you've lived alongside somebody having cancer before, you know, one cancer is not another cancer. Yeah, it's impossible to compute. Yeah. You know, I think one of the things that's definitely going to happen over the next few years is that we're going to stop calling that entire school of diseases by the same name. It's there's a spectrum for all things. It's like my I was saying to you before we started recording, my son being autistic, and there's a spectrum, mm-hmm. the neurodiverse spectrum is so enormous. Why is it even yeah. all called the same thing? And I think exactly. similarly with cancer, and, um, it's such a big spectrum. spectrum. It's not it's Massive. almost not all cancer. I mean it is, but you know what I mean. Yeah. But, but you know, I think we're gonna go up, you know, in, into a few more levels of detail in daily reference to it because it's not just about where it is. And no. it's, you know, it's 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 again so complex. There's a bit in the, um, I don't know if you're a Larry David fan, but there's a bit in the new Curb Your Enthusiasm series, which I'm a massive fan of, where they talk about the wisdom of a stage four cancer person and that you're there's the kind of um, social standing you get and a whole lot, and then them faking being stage four cancer people to give wisdom to people who might not want to listen to them if they weren't typical dark, uh, dark Larry David humour. But did you, having been denied your, your happy ending at a point in, I'm kind of really interested in midlife reinvention, not least because my whole thing has been midlife reinvention, but yours was sort of by necessity in a way in that something that had been such a point for you to orbit around throughout your adult life was suddenly gone and how did you how was it for you being in midlife and suddenly having to dig deep and start something completely new whether you liked it or not in terms of a new chapter well it was very odd I think because I, I, I work more in the sort of number of acts rather than chapters. Because what act do you think you're in? Because I still think I'm in. I think I'm in my second act, and my mates take the piss out of me because they're like, "You're at least in your third. What act are yeah. you in? But maybe you'll have five. Well, I thought, you know, me and Robert, great. You know, the the soprano and the tenor have finally got together, and it's all. You know, now we're going to live happily ever after in our sort of weird way. But then suddenly he dies, and I think, fuck, no, I'm not. Actually, I, I thought we were at the end of Act Three. We're actually. It, it's like two thirds of the way through Act Two, and I've got to carry the rest of the show sort of on my own. Mm-hmm. And it, the show's not about us. The show really is about me. Mm-hmm. My show is about me. I'm not some sort of you know character part in something else. I am my own damn heroine, and now I've got to do something about that, um, which included sort of signing off on him in a way. If I mean. Is that a reasonable way to put it? Can you ever sign you know, off closure, on him? Closure. You can no, get closure, but you'll always would you love you'll always love him, right? I always. mean he must yeah. Oh, I'm crazy about him. Yeah. He's, you know, he's adorable. And I will love him forever. However, he is dead. And that is a really lousy qualification in a boyfriend. Yeah. So um, you know, and he would be the first to go, What the hell are you doing? If I were to turn into a sort of Miss Havisham and spend my whole time weeping on his grave. There's actually a really lovely folk song which has sort of various titles and various different versions, which is basically about, um, you, you know, she the maiden fair who only had but one true love and he's, you know, in the Greenwood Lane and she goes to his grave and weeps and moans for 
you know, 12 months in a day. And um, on the 12th month in a day, the ghost rises up from the grave and says, what are you doing? Stop who is this who moans and will not let me sleep? And she says, "Tis I, thine own true love. And he's like, well, would you shut up, please? Because I'm dead. Go away. And she's all, but don't crave one kiss of your clay cold lips. <laughs> and you say, well, no, mate, it doesn't work like that. <laughs> um, so, you know, I didn't want to become that. I didn't want to be some sort of, oh, my marvellous dead husband, and I'm just going to waft around being a miserable widow. Not me, not my way, not fair on my kid, and not, you know. So I just said, well, I'll just write. I'll just, you know, write and write and write. And then I met this other lovely widow. So also, yeah, Michelle, Michelle Faber is now your partner, yeah. and I have I've read I, the the Crimson Petal and the White, another one of my absolute favourite books. Yeah, that's one hell of a book, <laughs> blimey! I mean, how yeah. nice to be hanging out with the brain behind that. Yes, well, it really is. And he had just lost his wife, and I went. It was a literary festival, and I did my thing in the afternoon. Robert had been dead for two years, and Michelle's wife Eva had been dead for two months. And he was doing his thing. And, you know, when people are, like, on another planet... He must have been in a state of literal shock. Oh, my God, it would have just, you know, standing on end and just, like, and I still think, you know, where are your friends? What's going on? What You can't be there in this state on your own. And working, trying to do a literary festival. Yeah, doing, that, doing yeah. the thing because you booked in and you didn't want to let people down and life's got to go on. And, and sometimes the only time you feel okay is on stage at a point like that, isn't it? Well, you know, I remembered. I remembered very, very clearly my first time back on the stage after Robert died. And I remembered my three lovely friends sitting in the front row and their eyes like some, you know, guy ropes holding me Willing up. you through it just willing me through it. They didn't take their eyes off me. And I, I found myself doing this to this guy that I'd never even met. Mm-hmm. Did he know at that point that you'd also lost your partner? No, no, we'd met for about two seconds in the in the green room. Um, but um, then I, no, so I, I sent him an email afterwards because I just thought, you know, he shouldn't be out. Mm-hmm. Poor guy, Jesus mm-hmm. Christ. And so we became pen pals, and that that was the start of our lovely romance, which was actually, I mean, it, it is a lovely romance, but it's also... Is he, he's Dutch, right? He's Dutch, yeah. Yeah, my kid's dad is Dutch, I, and I live in Amsterdam oh. part of the time, so I've got a very big fondness. They handled death quite differently over in Holland. Was it, did did well, he, his partner he, die he over there? Holland. He left Holland when, well, he left. He was taken um, as a small boy to Australia, so he was brought up in Australia for okay. So literally Dutch, technically Dutch, but not a Dutch sort of Dutch, culture. With a lot of those Dutch qualities of, um, you know, this is how it is. Why are you being delicate about how it is? Yeah, very direct. I remember my kids. Um, yes, it is the yeah. truth. You don't have to go on about it. Like, oh, oh, there's a lot of talk about everything from shitting to vibrators with oh. people who are octogenarians over there. And you have to get used to the fact that, oh, this is nice to meet yeah. you. <laughs> it's not yeah. all like yeah. over here. Very, so, that sense, very Dutch. Yeah. So a Dutch sensibility. Can you get a Dutch passport? That's the main thing to know at this moment. I'd have to, go and, I'd have to marry him and go and live in Amsterdam for three years and I'm not Dutch and I don't want to pretend to be Dutch. <laughs> I'll marry him to get a Dutch passport. I'm dying for one that isn't British at the moment. I want him. <laughs> yes, no, it's fine. I think you deserve to have him. So you've managed to get on what a lot of people in midlife don't get, which is a lovely relationship. So I think dating yes. uh, dating in your 50s is shit. I can be a, an absolute, uh, oh, yeah, I, I can vouch for that. <laughs> I can imagine. I think we're all, you know, yes. I think men our age are not looking for women our age is the main way I would uh, describe it. So it's quite hard to find. 
as well that women our age are not looking for men our age. We don't want women our age. No, exactly. I really like it when you see guys saying that they want someone 20 years younger than them. You think, great. Thank that you. rules you out of the game. Horrid. You know, now I don't have to think about you again. And it does only leave one unicorn galloping around the UK who doesn't want women younger, who we all have to compete for. That's the trouble because oh. so many of them do. It's, it's definitely a bit of an arse. Well, but maybe, I think- maybe this is the um, re- reason for um, the, the, the um, re- recent development of so much late onset lesbianism. Yeah, well, I do think, I mean... I'd much rather be a nice lesbian with a wonderful woman than with some bloke that I felt I'd had to sort of pursue or catch or, you know, the the kind of unicorn thing. Because, you know, if men at that stage are actually that kind of narrow-minded and sort of unimaginative and dull, I don't know... Well, the company of good women, I mean, I've never, I, as I've gone through life, I was a single mum most of my kids' life yeah. and lives, and I just never valued the company of women as much as I did as I went through those couple yeah. of decades. And yeah. that they, they're the most important people in your life, really, aren't they? The most well, long term, absolutely. Yeah, they're yeah. in it for the it's long haul. Birds that will hold it all together. Yeah, them it? and your, yeah, yeah, strong birds around you. I think that's that's what you need. And in terms of, uh, of strong women, your daughter, your daughter is a uh, is is quite an amazing person in the world in her own right but writing Lion Boy so you wrote Lion Boy when she was how old how old did you write the first well it started from uh bedside stories bedtime stories when she was really little and then just sort of grew from there and I think she was nine when the first one was published so when you say you co-wrote it you were you the two of you so you would tell stories to her or she would contribute to the stories you would tell contribute and I would say what do you want a story yes what about you know a naughty little boy okay what's his name Charlie so we had this recurrent character and Mm -hmm. what's Charlie like well one of the things was that Charlie could talk to cats and so we'd be so you know where's Charlie now what's he going to do where's he going to go and it became sort of you know one longer more complicated story where Charlie was running away with the circus and meeting lions and things and then she told me to write them down it was her birthday I said what do you want for your birthday said I want you to write the stories down and I said well can you remember them it's like mm, some, so we sort of started again from scratch, and with her sort of co-dictating them. Yeah, and with trying her to saying, "I want them. him to, go to, you know, I want him to go to France, and I want the circus to be on a boat," and I'm like, "Oh, and what if?" And she said, "Yes, and you know." So it was just conversation between us. Mm-hmm. And then I would write it down during the day, and then she'd read it, or I'd read it to her, and she'd say, "I don't like this bit," and can can we do that? And um, mummy, he had blue eyes three pages ago and now he's got brown eyes you know mm. that sort of thing um which is very good editor from like a, a mini editor how fantastic yeah. I'd like a mini yeah. editor to live here I, I just realized that um if I'd been doing this with another adult we would be I, I would be lying and cheating to claim that I'd done all the work on my own mm-hmm. and so the world well, you know she's co-author then Plus, I realised it would work very well from a tax point of view because she could just earn her own money, be paid directly mm-hmm. for what she put into it. But we had no idea if anyone would want it. I was meant to be writing a book about Rachmaninoff at the time. And you wrote it under a nom de plume. Where did that come from, the name? Well, Zizu, yeah, Zizu Corder. Um, Zizu was the name of her lizard. Okay, real lizard. Yeah, a chameleon called Zizu, who is um, named after Zinedine Zidane, the footballer, mm-hmm. who we both had a massive crush on at the time. Um, they and... last a bloody long time, don't they? Kids, reptiles. 
Oh, God. My son had a leopard gecko and he left home for university. I was like, how long is this thing going to last? He said about another 23 years. I was like, fucking hell. And I'd go to pets at home and there'd be women my age buying bloody locusts to feed to reptiles. There'd be long leopards. <laughs> luckily, luckily, a very nice young fella called Finn. We, we, we uh, adopted Zizu, who was a, a Lion Boy fan and was about eight. Oh, thank Christ. When Isabel <laughs> turned, I don't know, I think it was, I, I think it's when she came back from university and yeah. we, we had the, the chat and thought, you know, Zizu deserves better. Somebody else can give Zizu more than we can. Yes. And this young fellow Finn turned up, you know, talking about David Attenborough and writing sort of eight-year-old articles for BBC Nature Lovers magazine and being yeah. clearly an absolutely top kid and madly in love with animals and so Zizi went to live with Finn and his family so that's a, a happy ending for him too. It sounds as if Finn and again I won't assume Finn was on the spectrum but it's possible Finn was my son certainly always had this massive passion for animals and found mm. um, many he, he used to decipher human behavior through the behavior of animals that he would understand particularly primates and I think it's a lot of kids my son one of the I, I said to you that I asked my son if there's anything he wanted me to ask you mm. and he felt that the whole idea of Charlie sort of speaking being able to speak to cats and the idea of communicating between animals and humans, he felt that that had a very Asperger'sy autistic side to it. Was there any element of that, or is that just something that spoke to him as an autistic boy? I don't know. I think, I think it's one of the great desires of humanity. You know, who didn't want to talk to their, you know, to their pets or to the birds or to the whole Pullman um, trilogy? I, I guess is underpinned yeah, by that beautiful relationship. Isn't it? You know, why yeah. don't I have a silken otter that lies yeah. around my neck and whispers wisdom into my ears? You yes. know, and you know, the bird that's going to fly up in the middle of the story and, and tell you which way to go. I mean, I uh, I think it's a human thing. I think it's something which you know maybe there are human beings out there who have never wanted to be able to talk to or understand. Because actually, I want to understand animals more than I want to talk to them. I mean, what have I got to say to them other than ask them questions? But I just want to, I always wanted to eavesdrop on the animals. There is something very, um, I notice it when I go and visit my son works at Paint and Zoo now as a primate keeper. When yes. I go down there, there's something so, yeah, what a nice job, eh? I mean, I do a lot of it shoveling shit and sort of physically yeah. hoofing around. But um, but there's something about being in the company of animals. And I guess that's, it's interesting that he absolutely adored your trilogy. And I think it was because it was that world that to him just felt absolutely natural, of course, mm. these animals and humans. are, And also, you know, against the backdrop of a society that increasingly feels a bit like the one we're living in now don't you think yeah 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 kind of corruption yeah yeah I mean there are a great many occasions in my life when I've written things in a book which have then come true to such a degree that sometimes I feel I should just write about and could you write about um a ginger comedian who's 52 getting on live at the Apollo Louisa that would be much appreciated (laughs) (laughs) if you don't mind yeah (laughs) interspersed between the novelist who wins the pools and the uh obviously (laughs) and the daughter who takes over the world yeah that would be great yeah the issues and the stopping of climate change yeah all it's that. a good way to be a modern day witch if you wouldn't mind trying to pull it off <laughs> what would you pick as your namaste motherfucking life-changing moment well do you know what i thought about this and i thought of several different ones because actually if you're in the right frame of mind then they happen every day 
it's like when people say where do you get your ideas and things you know I don't get them they're just everywhere it just Mm -hmm. depends on whether or not my eyes are open that day Mm -hmm. and so I in the same way anything can be that occurrence but I suppose the two big ones are when you have your baby and you realize you're a grown-up mm-hmm. followed by when your parents die and you realize that you're really the grown-up mm-hmm. mm-hmm. <laughs> and that was amazing when my dad died and I found myself you know feeling like part of me had died and then realizing of course part of me has died because we are in fact the same flesh and blood and you know, I can hear his voice, not just in my head, but in my own voice. And I see his hands in my hands. And why can't he play the piano when his hands could play the piano? You know, that's not fair. And the writing, I guess. Did you get, did you writing, get the writing from your dad? Uh, yeah, pretty much. So mm-hmm. My mum wrote as well. But I think I write more like him than like her. I think. I don't know. Mm-hmm. But then I thought, well, those are things that happen to everybody all the time. But my actual kind of epiphany thing the equivalent to your experience with Joan Rivers which I like very much (laughs) I'm going to adopt 45 honestly it's baby's age I know isn't it I'm so glad already that someone said to me I just made my I just made my first album yeah you know uh, and I've, I've worked out that I am possibly the oldest woman ever to release a debut album I mean I say and you've got and the title track you left early yeah, on it. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. It's called You Left Early. It's lovely. It's-, it's got a sort of Joni Mitchell thing to Ooh, it. I thank thought. you very much. Oh, that's all right. I loved it. Yeah. yeah, yeah. But you know, I, I, I didn't record that till I was. I recorded that when I was fifty-nine. Yeah. And if we can put a little clip of that at the end, we will. If oh, we, I guess we'll need your permission. Help yourself. We? Help yourself. Because <laughs> when I say released, this is not that I was released by some marvelous record company. I was released in that I put some tracks up on SoundCloud and made some. I made some vinyl. I thought you know do it properly. There's only one way to do it, and that would be vinyl. And actually, Gen Z love vinyl, so you're doing something that well, speaks to the young as well as to people. Well, I'm I'm very much here to be spoken to. Yeah. Um, but no. So the but so my actual number moment from that point of view would be has got to be when I met Johnny Cash mm-hmm. and I was sitting in Johnny Cash's house and I was sort of interviewing him and he wasn't very chatty and we started talking about his songs and one song in particular and he said oh do you like that one I said I love that song and it was based on a scene from a John Steinbeck book from, from Grapes of Wrath. And he's like, oh, you read Grapes of Wrath? I said, yeah, you read Grapes of Wrath. And he said, well, like, I, I lived Grapes of Wrath. And I'm like, mm-hmm. of course you did, you're Johnny Cash. Oh, my God, I'm talking about Steinbeck with Johnny Cash. Anyway, so then he played the song for me, and then he said, what else do you like? And I'm like, seriously? And, and well, I'm, I'm very fond of this one. And he played and sang it for me. And I think I'm sitting in Johnny Cash's front room, and he is playing songs for me and playing the guitar for me. And this is really happening. And I turned off my tape recorder because I just thought, no, no, don't. Because if you have this as a physical thing, it'll, you know, you, you'll just worry about it. So I just turned it off and I just sat there. And, um, you know, it was a terrible interview, obviously, but as a, an experience, it was monumental. And what he said to me was, he said, um, he said, you've got to be what you are whatever mm-hmm. you are you've got to be it and I'd spent my whole time wanting to be John Steinbeck or Johnny Cash or a man or someone with curly black hair and 
flawless skin and you know six foot tall and seven stone and you know all the things that one wants and longs you know grace jones why aren't i grace jones mm-hmm. and then it's like no look johnny cash has told me not to be grace jones mm-hmm. he told me to be me mm-hmm. well who am i okay i'm a you know posh blonde with a lisp who can write well fine worse things to be that's me I'm going to do what Johnny Cash told me. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and I did. And I went home and I gave up journalism and started writing books. And it's worked very well for me. And you became um, yourself. I think Oscar Wilde said, be yourself. Yeah. Everybody else is taken. Think- <laughs> <laughs> well, exactly. Well, there you go. So you've got Johnny Cash <laughs> and Shakespeare to thine own self be true. There you go. That's, that's a, that's a pretty powerful Dave triumvirate telling us to. No, man. <laughs> Yeah, and I'm pretty sure that, you know, Maya Angelou's probably said it somewhere as well. She'll have definitely said it and thrown in something about imposter syndrome to boot. There's no doubt. Yeah. (laughs) And actually, being yourself is not only not that bad, it's actually your only... It's kind of essential. I think the bigger the gap between who you (laughs) pretend you are and who you are, that gets metal fatigue as time goes on. And perhaps that's what I mean by strategies reaching their sell-by date. You can fake it for maybe two, three decades, but something's got to give at a certain Sooner or later, you're going to be yourself anyway, so you might as well start early and do it to the best of your ability. Yeah, I remember a friend of mine, um, an American friend who's quite religious, she's from a big religious family and she goes to church in one of those kind of like singing hallelujah kind of churches. And she said her preachers preachers said to her, "Um, if life ain't brought you to your knees, you just ain't lived long enough. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, hang around. (laughs) Hang around, it will. (laughs) Well, that's a very lovely country and kind of a phrase as well, isn't it? (laughs) And what's your favourite joke, Louisa? Well, I've been thinking about this, and obviously I don't actually like jokes. I like it when people are just funny Mm -hmm. in conversation Mm -hmm. and you just get on one of those riff things. And so I've been trying to think about a joke that encapsulates that, and I came back to this thing of when somebody said that koalas weren't really bears, Mm -hmm. and somebody else said, do you mean it's not a bear, but it's got all the koalifications? (laughs) And I'm afraid to say that that kind of puerile wordplay is the kind of thing which brings me to my knees in fits of delight. That's my kind of joke. Now, Michelle being Dutch doesn't get puns at all, cannot understand Yeah, there's a bit of a literalism that goes with Dutch. But at the same time, being a phenomenal wordsmith, he... um, has taken on board that his ridiculous English girlfriend absolutely loves puns. And so, of course, he's terribly good at them. He just doesn't think they're funny. So this actually sets up a really nice dynamic. So a technical pun tears, maker. The tears of laughter <laughs> while, you know, just shaking his little Dutch head and <laughs> not understanding at all. Anyway, it's very nice for me. I'm quite it's- jealous that you've managed to get the silverback of Dutch men. You've just swept straight <laughs> in <laughs> and nabbed him out of the first. Oh, i got to tell him that. Silverback Michelle. Yeah. <laughs> And if you could give one bit of life advice to anybody listening, what would it be? Oh, now I did think through this as well. And I um, wrote down two things. One, stop smoking. Two, stop lying to yourself.
I pick a thing inspired by my guest that I am going to do. And this week, it's reading the book Louisa mentioned, Anne Bronte's The Tenant of Wildfell Hall. The book was written over 250 years ago from the perspective of a woman's love for her alcoholic husband. I'm ashamed to say that I specialised in 19th century literature for my English degree. I'm not ashamed that I did that, but I am ashamed that I never read a single thing by this lesser known Bronte sister. So it's about time I cracked on with this. So I'm looking forward to doing that. Love a romping 19th century novel. And we'll put a link to that in the show notes, as we always do with the things I try. And that is it for this episode. Thank you so much for listening. Do remember to keep liking and reviewing and telling your friends if you tell your friend every time you listen to one of these then you know there'll be a lot of friends who know about this by christmas and we will be back in your feed next monday as always when i will be talking to actor and comedian kerry godleyman the thing about stand-up i suppose is that you usually build it on an assumption that you're funny anyway and that you've been funny and you've made people laugh Namaste Motherfuckers was written and presented by me, Callie Beaton, and produced by Mike Hansen and Karusha Dami for Pod People Productions, with music by Jake Yap. I'm Callie Beaton. Until next time, motherfuckers. Hi, my name is Kay Adams, and to be honest, I'm not so good with the ageing process, so I enlisted my old chum, the filter-free Cara McKenzie, to advise. Could you imagine being a porn star? The room would need to be really hot for me to strip (laughs) off. To be honest, she's not much help, but she is rather amusing. And along with some great guests, Joe Brand, Andy Oliver, Anton Dubeck, Ruth Langsford and Craig Revel Horwood, darling, we are learning how to be 60. Listen wherever you get your podcasts.